Our reading today comes from Psalm 34, reading the whole psalm together. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. And it is very good to be together again, isn't it? We had uh, last Sunday the, the privilege of joining together with um, other partner churches in the city at Bon Accord Free Church. But it is great to be back together um, as a church family this morning. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is, is Johnny. I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And as a, a quick sort of advanced notice, if you like, from uh, next Sunday morning, we'll be starting a new series in the book of Philippians which I'm very, very excited about uh, and, and for what God might do uh, in us and through us uh, in that letter as we consider it together. But for this Sunday, and um, we have one final Sunday in the Psalms, and um, we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about the Psalm Rod has just read, Psalm 34. But before we think about that together, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Our God and Father, we praise you this morning as one who is absolutely worthy of all our praise. And we pray now that you would please help each of us over the coming few minutes to see you for who you really are, and so to praise you as we ought. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, a bit of a personal question to begin with. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? As people, we can be uh, afraid or frightened of lots of different things, can't we? There are uh, the more common fears uh, of spiders or snakes or heights. 
Then there are the somewhat less common fears. I found out a little while ago that there is a phobia called, and please bear with me, hippopotomonstrosesquipedaleophobia. I've been practicing that all week. And uh, that is the word, and I kid you not, that is the word for people who are afraid of long words. Uh, whoever was given the job of naming that fear, fear was, was clearly a bit of a, a sadist, weren't they? And uh, yeah, along with those, those sort of tangible, those quite visceral fears, there are other things which we would describe as being fears, aren't there? The fear of a bad diagnosis. The fear of relapsing into addiction. The fear of death itself. Represented in a room like this one, will be a whole raft of different fears. And uh, we tend to think of fear as, as being a bad thing, don't we? we? We talk about facing our fears or of overcoming our fears. We want to leave fear behind because if I could only get past this fear that plagues me, if I could be delivered from all of them, then I'd be truly free. Uh, well, if you are someone who has fear... Perhaps he longs to overcome that fear. Then this morning's psalm, Psalm 34, may be just what you need to hear today. It is a psalm that is all about fear and being rescued from it. You might have spotted that as Rod read it for us. Fear is one of the key ideas in Psalm 34. The word itself appears five times as we read through the psalm. And the whole song is framed as a celebration by someone who has been rescued from their very worst fears. Just notice that with me. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. David, who, who wrote this psalm, was rescued from the things he feared most. That sounds great, we might think. I would, I would love to be delivered from my deepest fears. So, so just how did he manage it? Was it by facing his fears through some kind of, I don't know, aversion therapy program perhaps, or maybe just through sheer strength of will, convincing himself not to be frightened anymore? Well, no. You see, the big surprise of Psalm 34 is that David was delivered from his fears, not by overcoming them, but by replacing them. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps round those who fear him and delivers them. See, fear isn't the problem in and of itself in Psalm 34. In fact, fear is, is, is part of the solution to the problem. The problem in Psalm 34 is having the wrong kind of fear about the wrong kind of thing. Know the right kind of fear, says David, the fear of the Lord, and you will overcome that problem. In fact, know the right kind of fear, and you'll experience real and lasting blessing. Now, that was true for, for David in his situation and we'll see this morning that it's true for us too. Let's think about that under our first heading this morning. Verses 1 to 10. Taste and see the goodness of God. Now, being a prisoner of war, 
has always been a fairly dreadful experience. We in, in our culture tend to associate, I guess, POWs with the Second World War. But there have been prisoners of war, of course, for, for pretty much as long as there has been war. And it's a horrible situation because not only are you a prisoner, which itself is obviously bad enough, but because you're being held captive by the people whom you've just been fighting. And so your well-being, your fate, is squarely in the hands of your opponents. Hands which are very often minded to cause you harm. And that is just the kind of context about which Psalm 34 was written. One of you noticed, just look back at Psalm 34 if you have a Bible with you, and look at the little heading above the psalm itself. This one isn't even given a verse number, but it's very much part of the original text. And in this instance, as much as any, it's really important we don't miss it. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. That little heading was written by David himself, King David, from the Bible, and it allows us to pinpoint exactly what was going on in his life when he sat down to write Psalm 34. Some of you, I guess, might be more or less familiar with David's story from the Old Testament, the story of the shepherd boy who defeated that terrifying giant Goliath. And for a number of reasons, after that victory, David had to go into hiding. And of all of the places he could have gone... He ended up hiding out in Goliath's hometown, a place called Gath. And uh, as you might imagine, after killing their champion and and, and quite a lot of other Philistines to boot, uh, David wasn't exactly flavor of the month in Gath. He ended up being caught as an enemy of the state, and he was dragged before the king of the Philistines, a man called Abimelech. David found himself in a horrible spot, In today's currency, the equivalent of a prisoner of war, completely at the mercy of his enemies. And so you might begin to appreciate why he he, he might feel fearful of what was about to come his way. We're told in the passage in 1 Samuel that tells us that story, that David was much afraid of the king of Gath. That's the words the author uses. He was terrified until we read this. 1 Samuel chapter 21. David pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. In a last-ditch attempt to escape... David pretended that he wasn't, he wasn't really worth the time of day. He wasn't, he wasn't worth keeping as a prisoner because he'd lost his mind. And the surprise in that story in 1 Samuel is that it worked. Abimelech decided to let David go, and David was free. Now that whole story, a potted version I've just given you of that story, might sound a bit bizarre to us today, so bizarre that it's almost a little bit funny. But you see, for David... It was anything but. Torture and death were the only things waiting for him. And yet instead, he was free. And that all helps us to understand what's going on back in Psalm 34. Just look again with me at the text of Psalm 34. and Look back at verse 4, if you would. 
I sought the Lord, says David, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Or on to verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Things looked utterly hopeless for David. And even though in one sense it was David's own quick thinking that saved him in that story, ultimately he says that behind all of that, it was God who saved him. It was God who delivered him from that which he feared the most. But what does that have to do with any of us? I mean, David lived a a long time ago, literally thousands of years ago. And the fact that he managed to get himself into a bit of a pickle and then to seemingly get himself out of it might be vaguely interesting as a story. What on earth does it mean to you and to me? Well, it is, as Rod mentioned, the start of a new school term, as some of us, I'm sure, know all too well. And the first day of school, or the first day of nursery, can be a very scary time for little ones, can't it? Think of the child who is absolutely dreading going into nursery for the first time. Unless they have their blanket with them, or their soft toy. Because that blanket or that soft toy gives them a sense of reassurance, a sense of comfort, enough even to face the scary thing they're about to walk into. But you see, the thing is, not to burst anyone's bubble, a blanket doesn't actually protect a little one in nursery, does it? I mean, of course, it makes them feel better about their experience, but, but, but objectively speaking, it doesn't actually offer any protection from the dangers they might face during an average day in nursery. And it is just possible to think of the Christian faith as being a bit like a spiritual comfort blanket. What do I mean? Well, if you're a Christian, I wonder if anyone has ever said something along these lines to you before. I wish I had your faith. It must be a real help to you when things are difficult in life. That's quite a common sentiment. You might even have said that kind of thing yourself before. And in one sense, it's meant to be a kind thing to say. It's positive about the fact that someone has faith because that faith helps them. It's a comfort, especially when things are difficult, whether whether there's a health scare or a job at risk, whatever the problem is. But in another sense, it's also vaguely dismissive as a sentiment to express. It treats the Christian faith as though it's a sort of spiritual comfort blanket. That it's great to have faith because it makes you feel better when you're facing scary things. But objectively, like a nursery school child arriving on the first day, Well, it doesn't actually protect you. It doesn't actually make a difference to things in real life. But I wonder if you can see that that isn't the kind of help David's talking about in Psalm 34. He isn't talking about faith as as a kind of placebo or or a, a sort of spiritual or emotional comfort blanket. David feared God, he says, and he was literally rescued His fear of God wasn't a placebo to make him feel better about his circumstances during a tough time. He was staring down the barrel of a gun. He trusted God and feared him more than the terrifying circumstances he found himself in. And God rescued him. 
Now, that is David's testimony about his own experience. And in one sense, the same is true of the Christian faith as a whole. It is not a spiritual comfort blanket. It isn't, as we sometimes think of it, a vague sense that everything will turn out okay in the end that makes you feel better when life gets hard. The reason that the Christian faith really is a help in tough times is because it's objectively true. It's about a literal rescue from literal death. It's about rescue from an eternity separated from the one who made you. And that changes absolutely everything about your day-to-day life. Now, if you're someone who has Christian friends, perhaps, and wishes you could have a faith like theirs, because, well, it seems to be a source of comfort to them in tough times, let me just say, the only reason it's really worth wishing for is because it's true. Because the God in whom they have faith is good and kind and is a rescuing God. That was David's testimony about his own experience. The first half of this psalm, verses 1 to 10, is effectively a review, if you like. It's written by someone who has experienced God's rescue and wants to shout about it from the rooftops. I'll bless the Lord at all times, he says. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But testimonies from other people are good. We can rely on them to to, to a certain point, I guess. But they only ever take us so far. Whether you're reviewing a, a restaurant, or a film, or a holiday destination, or a book, or a view, or a band, if someone's really going to see what you're banging on about, they need to try it for themselves, don't they? And David agrees. It isn't just enough that his hearers know how excited he is about God, that God is the God who rescued him. He wants his readers to know it for themselves. Verse 7, taste and see that the Lord is good. You need to try this. You need to taste it for yourself to personally experience and enjoy his goodness. He's issuing an invitation. And it is an invitation that's open to all of us this morning to taste and see just how good this God, David's God, is. Now, how do we do that? How do we experience the goodness of David's God? Well, it takes us back to what we began with this morning. It's all about a fear swap. We taste and see that the Lord is good, says David, even in a world where we might fear many different things by fearing him more. Let's think about that under our next heading. Taste and see the goodness of God by listening and learning the fear of the Lord. Now, if the first half of Psalm 34 is David's testimony, well, from verse 11, just notice David shifts from testimony giver to teacher. Verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, David feared God, and that was a good thing. But, he says, so should you. Now, at this point, it's worth asking, what does it actually mean to fear God? Because um, we so freight that word fear with, with negative connotations that it's hard not to see it as a bad thing. 
And to be honest, it isn't hard to see how it could be construed as a bad thing, a negative idea. I remember speaking with an older Christian lady quite some time ago. He told me that when she was small, she was told that God was always watching her and that she needed to be careful to do what she'd been told. Otherwise, her sins would find her out because this is the kind of God who could strike her down at any moment. Now, fear God like that, and you'll spend your life walking on eggshells, won't you? But that isn't the kind of fear we've been told to learn in Psalm 34. It can't be, because David, notice Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not taste and see that the Lord is terrifying. So what is a Psalm 34 kind of fear of the Lord like? Well, I think... It is seeing and revering God for who he really is in his perfect power and in his perfect goodness. That is what we're told of the the God of Psalm 34, the God whom we are to fear. Just read with me, verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. This God is for his people. He is a God who hears his people, who rescues his people. And at the same time, a God who is set against all evil in the world and will one day destroy it. Now, he isn't going to destroy his own people. If you've trusted in God for yourself, you needn't fear him in that sense. But we do still need to know who it is that we're dealing with. And we need to know that because knowing who he is, fearing him more than anything else in the world, is the only truly safe place to be. More than that, it's the only really good place to be. If you were here a couple of Sundays ago, I mentioned the author of the Chronicles of Narnia books, a man called C.S. Lewis. Those stories follow the adventures of children who discover an enchanted world called Narnia. And during one of the books, the children are told that they're about to meet the king, the most powerful individual in all of Narnia, who's called Aslan. And their conversation goes like this. Aslan is a lion, The lion, the great lion, says Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, the God of Psalm 34 isn't petty or vindictive, isn't waiting to to, to smite people down at any moment. He is perfectly good. And at the same time, he is not to be trifled with. He is not a walkover. Listen and learn the fear of this God. Revere him, view him as he really is, says David. And again, that isn't just a placebo. 
doesn't just make us feel better about the problems we face in life, although it does. The, problem you, the, the, the promise you see of Psalm 34 is that by fearing this God, well, we will experience his rescue too. We can taste his goodness. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Now, we do need to, to take care about what is and isn't being promised to us here because we aren't David. We might read David's testimony and, and hear about God rescuing him from all his fears and, and, and think that's exactly what's being held out for us if we fear God too. So that if you face down a horrible diagnosis or, or you face job insecurity, whatever it is you fear the most, that if you fear God more than that thing, he'll sort it. He'll fix it there and then. We can't quite claim that kind of promise. That isn't what's being held out in Psalm 34. And I'm not just saying that. I'm not backtracking. It can't be what's being held out in Psalm 34. As you read on, notice that for yourself. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, says David. If what was being held out for us in Psalm 34 was a pain-free life of, of wealth and of health and of prosperity, well, then David wouldn't stick verse 19 in there, would you? The idea that people who follow God will suffer many afflictions, will have difficult times. So he can't be saying that trials won't come if you fear this God. What's he saying instead? I heard this week about two men in the 17th century, both Scotsmen, who faced martyrdom for their faith in the God of the Bible. This is a, a true story, I should say. On their way to execution, they were singing this psalm, Psalm 34. It was a, a metrical version of the psalm, which basically means that the words have been jigged around a little bit, and it therefore rhymed, and the words fit a tune. And they sang and reached verse 19, in the metrical version, reads like this. The troubles that afflict the just, in number many be. But yet, at length, out of them all, the Lord doth set them free. And an observer noted that after saying verse 19, one of the men looked over to the other and said, God has not promised to keep us from trouble, but to be with us in it. And what more do we need? Psalm 34 does not say that God's people won't die. It does not say that we won't suffer even. Or that he'll guarantee a comfortable ride through life. But it is a promise that the God who protected, who guarded, who rescued David will guard and keep his people now from the kinds of trouble we should fear above anything else. From the kind of stumbling blocks that would derail us altogether from following him. Ultimately, from an eternity separated from him, from the judgment of a good and right God for our rebellion against him, even, ultimately, from death itself. There is genuine objective deliverance from our deepest problems. And it's available in this God, the God of Psalm 34. And you see, knowing that, that will affect how we view everything else we might be tempted to fear instead. 
Jesus himself said as much, actually. This is it. Jesus speaking in an account of his life, written by a man named Matthew. He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our God is good. And you can know that goodness to be true for yourself, can taste it and can see it by responding rightly to who he is and what he's done for you. Viewing him rightly is the only way to be truly safe, both into eternity and therefore in the here and now. And listen, if you still aren't convinced that that's really true, well, just look at the cross of Jesus. Because on the cross, David's greater son, Jesus, was not rescued from his foes. He suffered and bled and died at the hands of his enemies, faced down death itself. And he did that so that if you trust in his death for you, you wouldn't have to. That ultimately you could be delivered into an eternity where you will taste and enjoy the goodness of this God perfectly. Now, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, you are so very, very welcome. Please keep coming along week by week. We love having you. You are always welcome. Let me just ask if you can see how a a Psalm 34 kind of fear, the fear of this kind of God, the one who, who ultimately rescues his people, how that would put every other fear in its place. I mean, it does bring perspective and assurance in hard times, but not as a comfort blanket, not as a placebo, but as an objective reality. Fear this God who has power over life and over death and over matters of eternity. Trust in him and accept the rescue that he offers to you. And listen, you need not fear anything else this world can throw at you. Now, if you are someone who has already trusted in God for your rescue, this kind of Psalm 34 fear, it doesn't only cash out in our thought lives, if you like, and what we think of God. Fearing God also cashes out in how we live. And we'll think about that very briefly, I should add, under our final heading, Growing in Godliness. Viewing God rightly and fearing him sounds like quite a grand thing, I guess. My illustration of those two Scottish martyrs might have only compounded that idea, actually. It makes it sound as though it's all about the grand gestures. And it doubtless will do. It certainly did for David. But at the same time, fearing God might also look pretty unspectacular. And we see that in verses 11 to 14. Just read those verses with me again. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man, eh, sorry, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Yes, fearing God rightly will mean we don't fear other people or situations or even death itself. But David says it also cashes out in the nitty-gritty of life. 
It means that we'll guard our tongues and won't lie, verse 13. It means that we'll turn away from behaving in a way that dishonors God and instead look to honor him, verse 14. Now again, we need to be careful when we think about how that might, might work. Think of the older Christian lady I mentioned earlier who was told that God was watching her. You might imagine that sort of left her treading eggshells. It's a fairly horrible experience. And that isn't the kind of dynamic that Psalm 34 is describing, that we fear God, we obey him, in case he brings the sky crashing down on us at any moment. That isn't what's being described. But there is a sense that seeing God for who he really is, as one who is good, but who isn't safe, that that will shape the decisions we make day by day. When you're tempted to tell a half-truth, tempted to gossip about someone. Ask yourself, what kind of God is in your mind at that moment? Is it a God who's a bit like a kindly old grandfather? Or a best mate who won't really mind? Or do you have the God of Psalm 34 in your mind? See, in that split second of making a decision, it really helps to be reminded that we aren't dealing with a tame pocket-sized God, but with one who hates evil, who plans to do away with it altogether one day. Or when your boss wants you to do something that you know you shouldn't do as a Christian, but you're also a bit intimidated about him or her and of what it might mean for you if you don't do what they want you to do. When you're scared of being a social outcast if you refuse to join in with gossip in your staff room. Can you see the wrong kind of fear can even be part of what leads us in to sin? Psalm 34 would have us, I think, in that moment, asking ourselves, am I right to fear my boss? Am I right to fear being an outcast? Or am I instead right to fear the God of the Bible? I think I'll take my chances with my boss, don't you? Rightly fearing God cashes out in obedience to him. Now, we are right to fear God because of who he is. He is a mighty God who sets himself against all evil and all its consequences. And yet at the same time, fearing him, viewing him rightly, is the path to rescue, the path to joy, the path to experiencing his goodness. Taste and see that this Lord is good. How? By listening and learning to fear him as he is. Safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He is the king, I tell you. Let's pray to him now. Our God and Father, we praise you as the God of Psalm 34. The God who is perfectly good who is perfectly powerful, who has set himself against all evil in the world and will one day do away with it altogether. And we thank you, therefore, so very much for the good news of Jesus, that although each of us have indulged in evil, that you have shown extraordinary grace towards us in rescuing us 
We ask, Lord, that you would please help each of us to see you for who you really are. And therefore, to walk in right reverence of you, to obey you day by day, and to fear you rather than anything else this world may throw at us. Please help us, Lord, to taste and to see your goodness. And finally, Lord, we do pray that if there is someone here listening who has never trusted in you, we ask they would please find themselves being warmed to your good news this morning, to trust in you as the only safe place to be. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen.